Thanks for joining us today as you listen to a portion of a message recorded at Vine Life Church in Boulder, Colorado. If you'd like to connect with us further, you can visit us online at www.vinelife.com. And they give him the scroll to read. So he unrolls the scroll. And he goes to Isaiah 61. And he starts to read. Now, Isaiah 61 is kind of a big deal to us, isn't it? It's a big deal to a lot of churches, I hope, because it's a commission. For us, it's a legacy. For us, it's a calling. For us, it's our past, it's our present, and it's our future. And so Jesus begins to read, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has appointed me, pardon me, anointed me, to bring good news to the poor. He has set me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops there. Now that's Isaiah 61, but that's not what Jesus said. If you go to Luke 4, he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, two things jump out to me at this whole thing. The first thing is Jesus talks about the oppressed, and that's what I'm talking about today. And that word that he uses is a Greek word. It's like that long. Okay, I do not have the courage to try to pronounce it. All I can tell you, without butchering it, is to say that that is a transliteration of a classical Greek word that's throwo. And what it means is it means to bruise, to crush, to tear apart, to shatter, those kinds of things. That's what that word means. So Jesus and these people, they've all heard this before. This isn't new to them. And they heard that, and they were pleased. Because they were bruised, and they were shattered. They were crushed. They were trapped between the kings of the Romans and the priests of the temple. They got it. They understood what oppression was. The second thing about that is Jesus stops in the middle of verse 2. So verse 2, as he's reading it, Uh, says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And in Isaiah, it goes on to say, and the day of the vengeance of the Lord. But Jesus wasn't talking about that because the very first word that he says next is today. He's talking about what's happening in that little synagogue, in that little town, in front of that little community, and all's eyes are on him. And he says today, today. Oppression. Do you ever feel oppressed? Do you ever feel like, man, the wheels are coming off? If I didn't have bad luck, I wouldn't have any luck at all. I'm cursed. I can't get there. There's a glass ceiling. There's something. There's something that's pushing on me, that's squeezing the life out of me. I can't be who I am. Do you ever have those kinds of feelings of oppression? 
I think everybody does, sort of a rhetorical question. And it's not surprising, if you look at the world around us, um, wow, oppression is everywhere. It's in our homes, our relationships, our work settings, our community, the world's stage, and even in our churches. It's all around. It really is. It's found in race relationships, discrimination, economic inequality, teen suicide, opioid epidemics. It's all oppression. It's all oppression. It's all oppression. Oppression is not an accident. Oppression isn't something that just happened, like stuff just happened. I'll tell you what oppression is. Oppression is a weapon. It's a weapon cleverly deployed by the enemy to persuade us to do one thing, and that is to believe lies about ourselves. And why would he do that? He would do that because when we believe those lies, it drives a wedge between us and Jesus. It convinces us that we're not worthy of that relationship. It blinds us. It crushes us. It oppresses us. The root of oppression is power differential without accountability. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And when there's a power differential, there is a consistent temptation, absent accountability, to be abusive. The Me Too movement. Me Too. Here we have all of these men. I mean, I'm ashamed. I imagine every guy in this room is. I'm ashamed. We have these men in a setting of the power differential, and what do they do? Some of them use that differential to abuse women. And you know what? I don't think it's even about lust. I think it's about control. It's indifferent, it's calloused, and it's heartless. And it destroys, it traumatizes. We see it in the Church Too movement as well. We're not exempt from this, whether it's a movement or a mega church, a youth ministry, wherever it is. If there's no accountability, then that power can really go sideways on us. It's in the headlines of today. I have a rabbit trail. Will you let me have a rabbit trail? I'm going to ask some people to stand up. Um, I'd ask Don Waite to stand up. Don, are you out there somewhere? There's Don. Hi, Don. Paul Strange, yeah. These are awesome people. Paul Strange, would you stand up, please? Stay standing. Megadi, Megadi, Melody Almy, I don't think she's here. Um, Graham, Keppen, would you stand up, please? Yeah. Andrew, would you stand up, please? Luke, where's Luke? Is Luke in here still? He's in recovery. Okay, well, Luke would be standing here as well. Mike, would you stand up? Ed, would you stand up? These people, oh, Joni and Betty, would you stand up? These people are our leaders in accountability. These people, whether they're on the church board, oh, Dee Dee, stand up, please. Gosh, thanks, Ed. I w- <laughs> I'm sorry. These are the leaders in accountability in this church. These are the ones that hold us all accountable as we hold each other accountable. There is none here that is beyond the authority of these people that are standing to be brought into accountability. 
We're led by teams, and all of these people that are standing are on teams, and Betty and Joni sit at the center of all of this in the hub of communication. So if you ever have a question, if you wonder, how come, what about, that doesn't look right, Bob's going crazy, whatever it is, these are the people you go to because these are the ones that we all hold each other in accountability, and that's why we're safe. Please sit down. Thank you, guys. So much for my rabbit trail. You know, on a human scale, that's, that's, that's grand, you know. That's well, these, it's Willow Creek, these huge movements. It's the media, film, that kind of thing. But there's also a human scale of oppression. We see it all the time. You see it in your car when you drive down the street, and there's a man or a woman standing on the media and flying a sign. And I think a lot of the time what happens is... Not only are we not going to give them any money, which may not always be such a bad thing, we're not even going to make eye contact with them. You see, oppression is about not being seen sometimes, just as it's about not being heard sometimes. Sometimes we see something and we look the other way. Sometimes we just stay silent and we don't speak. That's oppression by collusion. Sometimes we're actively oppressive, or we experience active oppressing. Um, we have judgments on people because of how they look, or what they're doing, what they smell like, whatever it may be. We have judgments. Sometimes we get should on. Now, let me spell that. S-H-O-U-L-D. Should on. Okay? We get shut on. I get shut on all the time. People say, you should do this and you should do that. And I say, you should do this and you should do that. And the problem with should on is it's impressive because it implies a power differential. I know what to do and you don't. I'm more influential. I'm more articulate. I'm more powerful. I'm better looking. I leap buildings in a single bound. I'm faster than a speeding locomotive. Whatever it is, you should. And we do that. We tell our kids, you should. You should sit down, you know. Have you ever done that? We get should on, and we should on others. Sometimes we project things on people. Your child, maybe, maybe none of is there anybody here who didn't have trouble with their kids telling the truth? Am I the only one? No, I don't see a hand. Okay. Sometimes we find our child who we love and we care so much about, and we find them in a lie. And instead of saying to them, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, that's not who you are. Back off of that. Back off of that. Jesus didn't make you to be that way. He didn't do all those things in Isaiah 53 for you to be that way. Instead, we say, you're lying. And we point the finger of shame. Sometimes we go as far as to say, you're a liar. And we point the finger of corrupted identity. We oppress the child. And the one thing they'll know for the rest of their life going forward is that there was a moment where we oppressed them. And the danger is that they would believe it. That's the danger. It's interesting. In uh, my life here, Betty and Joni in particular man the front desk, and they're the heart of the compassion ministry. 
You see, in life, we have kind of a checklist of things that we look to to feel like we're doing okay. Uh, one of the boxes we check is intelligence. Am I somewhat intelligent, at least? Do I have a room temperature IQ? Okay. Sometimes on that list, there's a box for education. Do I have enough education? Sometimes there's a box about my physical health. Am I a healthy person or am I cursed? Sometimes there's a box about emotional stability. Am I stable or am I crazy sometimes? Okay. Sometimes there's a box about emotional security and do I feel safe and do I belong? Sometimes there's a box about life skills. Um, Am I reliable? Do I show up on time? Am I diligent? Am I consistent? Those kinds of things. So I get these reports from Betty and Joni, and people call in, and what they call in to do is to talk about the boxes they cannot check. They need help, and they've got boxes they can't check. I can't check the health box because I'm so sick. I have a debilitating disease, a physical condition, a limitation. I can't seem to hold a job. I can't check that box because nobody wants to to hire me for whatever reason. Sometimes the box is, I'm just cursed. Man, if I didn't have bad luck, I wouldn't have any at all. And they call in to report the boxes they can't check. And you know, we try to help them. We try to help them. Is it food? Is it clothing? Is it a gas card? Is it a utility bill? Whatever it is, we try to help them. But listen, that's hospice care. We all know what hospice is. Hospice is a place you go before you die where they manage your symptoms. They suppress your pain. It's palliative care. They're not going to cure anybody. That's not what they're doing. And when we do these things, they're not to be despised, but they're also not enough. Because what we don't do is we don't engage. We don't engage. There's no healing in hospice. So why does this matter? Why am I... I hope I'm not guilting you out. Am I guilty? I hope not. No? No, please. And and Joni and Betty, don't feel like I'm critical of what you're doing. I love what you're doing. I'm grateful. But why does this matter? Why does this matter? Well, the reason it matters is if we don't engage, who will? Who will? Who's going to do that? Who's going to actually engage with someone who's in a place of oppression? Who's going to speak it? Who's going to protest it? Who's going to do something about it? You see, we're wired to engage. That may not be good news for all of us, but we are wired to engage. That's why we have pets. Just think about pets. You have puppies and kittens and turtles and fish and gerbils and all these creatures. And you remember when you were a kid or with your kids, at some point in time this madness came over them and they wanted a pet. I need a puppy. And what did we say? We said, well... Okay, but you understand you've got to take care of them. You've got to take care of them, right? Yeah. Skepticism speaketh. <laughs> you've got to take care of them. Because part of the dynamic is this. When you take care of them, 
to some degree, they take care of you. Even a goldfish, your little buddy swimming around in a little aquarium. Hmm? We're wired to engage. If we can't care for others, we see this all the time. If we can't care for others, you know what happens? We can't care for ourselves either. Think of the people, the self-absorbed people that you've met who have no, no thought for anybody else. They're totally self-absorbed. I mean, they be polite, hello, hi, how you doing? All that. But they're self-absorbed. And most often, those are the people that we see that are uncared for. They're not happy. They're struggling in life because we're wired to care. And caring means engaging. You know, sometimes we oppress ourselves. <laughs> A little self-oppression here. Um, we oppress ourselves when we allow someone to speak into our life because they have a power differential. That power differential might be they know something we don't know. They think something we don't think. They have a different take on it. They have some referent credibility. Somebody told them and now they're telling me. Okay? And we give them permission to speak into our life, and the enemy uses that. The enemy uses that. But we give the permission. Sometimes we listen to the whispers of accusation. Now, sometimes it's in Scripture, just like Jesus experienced. If you're the Son of God, right, we listen to these accusations. The accusations are around things like um, shame. Sometimes it's guilt. Sometimes it's fear. But they all lead to one place. It's called unworthiness. They all say the same thing at the end of the day. We're unworthy. And that's the wedge that the enemy wants to keep us from Jesus. But it only is real when we give permission. In Luke 4, as this conversation, this report of, of Jesus being tempted comes to an end, God's word says... And Satan withdrew to await a better opportunity or another opportunity. And you can search the scriptures from then on, and that opportunity never occurred. There was never a better opportunity for Satan, and there isn't one for anybody here either. Okay? There isn't. There is no better opportunity for Satan. Well, now that you're all encouraged, <laughs> there is good news. There is good news. See, when Jesus stopped in the middle of verse 2, he was saying the words today. In, in, um, in Luke 4.20, it says this. It says, And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, 
this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And that is the good news. It's been fulfilled. He was talking to a little group of people in a little town, in a little nowhere country, and he was announcing today. Today is the beginning of all. This scripture has been fulfilled. No, he didn't go on and talk about the oil of gladness and the oaks of righteousness and all that. That was to come. It was today. And not only that, but he wasn't proclaiming a 12-month year. The, the, the word is 12 months. But we know what Jesus did. We know he fulfilled Isaiah 53. And what did he do? He brought us into an age of favor. It's not a year, not a decade or a century or a millennia. It's an age of favor. That's good news. We live in an age of favor. We live with a God who loves us, a God who cares for us, a God who's kindly disposed towards us, a God who brings his favor upon us and goes before us and blesses us today. You see, when we came to Jesus, we came poor in spirit. And what did he do that day, that today? He filled us to overflowing. He lavishly poured into us love and power, the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he did. Today, we know and we can declare that we're crucified with Christ. And with him we're resurrected today. We're a new person We have no reason to ever give permission for oppression. We have no reason to go back in the grave and drag that dead person out and say, oh, we're not worthy. Isaiah 53, look what he gave to make us worthy. That's what he did. Today we live in the language of freedom. I can't think of how many times I've sat here in this room or stood here in this room and sung things like, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. You hear that melody go through your head? Or we sing, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. Because we're not alone. That's good news. That's freedom. That's the language of freedom. Today, any captivity there ever was to sin, to death, or to fear, is gone. Those chains are broken. That's the good news. We're free. We're free. And why? Why are we free? Hmm? Think about this. The incarnate Jesus... The Word that became flesh. That Jesus came to flesh out God's love and His promise for us. Our call and purpose in our flesh is to incarnate the message and the love of Jesus to the world around us. We're fleshing things out. That's why it matters. That's what we're called to do. And it happens in a lot of different ways. But the question is, is the Spirit of the Lord on us? Is this for us? Is it? Is it the Spirit? Is it? it? 
I think the answer is inside us. So I'd like you to undertake a little exercise with me. If you take a moment, just close your eyes. Just close your eyes and just settle. Just open your spirit. Just see it opening up to the spirit of God. And say in yourself, is this for me? Is this for me? And we have to be ready for the test. It'll come. It may be here right now. It may come in the language of fear. What if I fail again? Or guilt. I've already messed up too many times before. Or shame. I know I'm not worthy. God knows. He knows the real me. Maybe it'll come in Scripture. And we'll think, no, no. I'm like the woman in Samaria. I just keep the same sin going over and over again. Or I'm like the calloused and indifferent Levite who walked past the man in the ditch because I don't seem to be able to care for others because I once walked by somebody in a ditch. Or maybe it'll come in the language of, it's okay, you're demon-possessed. You're like the man in the gatherings who was full of demons. Those things are all lies. Those are all lies. Those are accusations. There is no opportune moment for Satan. There is none. We're in Christ. Today we can name them. And without our permission, they have no power. Satan's just going to have to wait. Forever. This is for me. Holy Spirit, this is for me. Show me. Stir me. Guide me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. doctors don't heal us. God wired the healing in us. Doctors create an atmosphere where healing can occur. They don't heal. Right now we're in an atmosphere of healing and envisioning. Wherever you are right now, I don't have the words of eternal life but Jesus does wherever you are right now is where you really are and he's really there with you he's there he's got you he loves you he's holding you thank you Jesus thank you
Okay. Come back. <laughs> I hope you went far and high, but come back. You're not being should on, okay? You're being invited into a choice. You're being could on, I guess. I think there's some things that you can do when you walk out of here, if you choose to. I think one thing you can do is you can listen to this message again. It's being recorded. It'll be online, vinelife.com. I don't know, maybe as soon as later today. I'm not sure. But you can listen to this again. You can do exactly what you just did. You can sit in that space and you can say, Lord, is this for me? My spirit's open. My heart's open. Is this for me? Another thing you can do is you could share this message with somebody else. There are people around all of us in our workplace, in our family, in our relationships, all kinds of places in our church that they need to hear this. And you can share a link with them. Click. You can do that. Another thing you could do is for those that receive it, those that receive it, you could bring them here. You could bring them here. You could bring them to encounter here what you encounter here. You must encounter it. You keep coming back. Okay? You can bring them here. You can engage with them. And you can prepare yourself to engage with those that others bring here as well. You can do that. You can look to that person and say, uh, Do you come here often? No, I'm brand new. Wow, how'd you end up here? How many of you have I ever asked that question to? How did you end up here? What brought you here? I, that's, that's a common question that I ask when I meet someone who hasn't been here before because I want to try to see what God is doing in their life and how I can cooperate. How can I cooperate with it? And in doing this, you can ask yourself a couple of questions. The first question is, what has been given to me? What do I hold? What is my space here? Maybe my space is to play keys, like Grace. Maybe my space is at the coffee bar or down in Wellspring to sit when these people come and just say, Hi, I see you. I care about you. Tell me about you. And to look for who God is giving you, because God gives us all somebody or somebody's. So those are some do's that you can do. Uh, my prayer today is that you're choosing to discover something about who you are and special in Jesus in a new way. And as you walk out of here and you know what oppression is, you know the weapon it is, and you know that why it is, and you know what it looks like, and you know what to do about it. That's my prayer for today. That's all I'm hoping for. But when you engage with people, be it me engaging with you or you engaging with something else, somebody else, the truth is this. It's what Paul wrote to the, to the church in Corinth. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but it is God who brings the growth. When you engage... 
You're not there to bring the growth. You're there to plant. And sometimes when we plant, the fruit of that seed we will not see. It won't be in our space. It won't be in our time. We won't see it. But we can trust that someone will water it and God will always grow it. We can have that confidence when we engage. I'm going to close with a poem. And this poem, <laughs> this poem is attributed to Sir Francis Drake. Okay? There's no proof of this. Google it up. There's no proof of this. Nobody's found a manuscript or a book or a scrap or a publication or anything, but it's believed broadly that Sir Francis Drake wrote this. And what I'm reading to you has been updated from the King James language. Okay? He didn't write these words, but he meant these words. And here's what he said, and I think it's good for us. He said, Disturb us, Lord, when, when we're too well pleased with ourselves. When our dreams have come true because we've dreamed too little. When we arrive safely because we sail too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, when with the abundance of things we possess, we've lost our thirst for the waters of life. And having fallen in love with life, we've ceased to dream of eternity. Oh. And in our efforts to build a new earth, we've allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wider seas where storms will show your mastery. Where losing sight of land, we'll find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and for us to push into the future in strength and courage and hope and love. That's good, isn't it? That's good stuff. In 1939, the London Times published this in the newspaper, and it was all around, was, did, did Drake write this, or who wrote this, or whatever. And the Times said this, he said, the London Times, whoever wrote it, said, There must be a beginning to every matter, but continuing to the end yields the true glory. So it doesn't matter where it began. What matters is where it ends. And where does it end? It ends to the glory of God. That's where it all goes. Right? Good. Let's stand, please. Yeah, ministry team.